Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 62 of the podcast, the topic is financial megatrends in the Middle East. Our guest is Biswajit Dasgupta, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Global Markets at Emirates Investment Bank. In this conversation, we talk about the financial and social megatrends, COVID-19's impact on the region and the world, geopolitical risk, economic challenges at the start of the decade in the MENA region and beyond, and what that means for the future. A word from one of our key partners. The Ritosa Summit is the leading family office conference, the largest and most influential gathering of family wealth representing U.S. $4.5 trillion and some 1,000 family offices. Throughout the year, summits are held in Monte Carlo, Monaco, Dubai, UAE, and Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and with virtual keynote panels keeping the community connected in between. Bizwajit, I'm, I'm so happy to be with you here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. I wanted to kick it off with a, a little bit of background. So, you know, we uh, barely met. I saw you on stage uh, at this uh, Ritosa Summit, but you were talking about something that, that really struck me, which is why I wanted to, to get back to you. Um, but I do feel now that I've understood a little bit about your background, that it, it is partly your background that makes your views so interesting. Let me explain what I have gathered from where you have okay. met path from... India to uh, even you know try work around the world, including a stint as country treasurer in Kenya, and you're now back you know in Dubai. But I'm assuming you've kept some of this very global and certainly international perspective on economics and on societal development. So I guess my first question, really, to you, uh, Bizwajit, is what is it that formed your current professional uh, practice and, and what in your background really has shaped the way that you generally look at economics and, and at society? Right. So look, uh, you, you alluded to my professional experience, but something that has added to that, that whole uh, 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 input uh, is also the fact that I had the opportunity to travel quite a lot on my personal account, uh, sometimes attending conferences, meeting people, and so on. Uh, so, first of all, uh, just to sort of roll things back, I think part of it is to do with with uh, my my sort of, if you wish, my my philosophy, my my way of looking at things. I like to uh, not uh, uh, allow preconceived notions to necessarily guide me. I like to learn. I like to question. I like to, you know, cross-check to see if what is being said is making sense with my personal experience, with what I'm reading from other people, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think that's one. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, like I said, I have had the good fortune to, uh, to be able to travel quite a lot and interact with people from all over the world from a very early age. Uh, and that has shaped uh, quite a lot of things. It has, I think, allowed me to... Um, Keep an open mind to really be able to see the other person's point of view to to look at things a little bit more holistically, rather than approaching it only from the perspective of what my personal direct experience is. Yes, um, and and is it true that you have kind of spent your life in the financial world, or have you also straddled outside of that when it comes to kind of your professional career? No, professionally, I have. Pretty much been in in the financial field from uh, from the time I started working, more or less. I mean, uh, having said that, within that space, uh, I worked for corporates, I worked for banks, I worked for sovereign wealth type entities, uh, I worked for a wealth manager. So, so different types of entities, but all of them within the financial world. All right. So let's jump to let's jump to the. The, the very exciting, exhilarating, and somewhat shocking kind of start to the decade that we have mm -hmm. both, uh, you know, both you and I and the rest mm -hmm. of the world yes. striking experience yes. kind of at the same time. How do you look at 
2020 so far? Let me start there. See, I think uh, in some ways, both as a beginning and as, a, uh, and as an end to some things. Uh, an end, I, or at least the beginning of an end, if not the end. Uh, I hope, uh, based on what people have experienced over the last few months since this whole thing broke, uh, a few fairly uh, concretized notions in people's minds have been shaken. Right. For one, we have seen that uh, uh, health is actually the most important thing in our lives. I think we have realized that you know very much more strongly than we have in all these years. We have also realized that money doesn't buy you health. Uh, your social status doesn't buy you health. You, the number of your Instagram followers doesn't buy you health. Uh, you know, none of this does. Right. You're you're, you're not immune. Right, you're you're as as exposed as anybody else. Perhaps more importantly, uh, for you to be well, people around you have to be well as well. Right, it's no longer a question of my being well while everybody else around me can suffer. I think that people have realized doesn't work. Right, if 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 my hairdresser is not feeling well, I have a problem. Right. If uh, I take the public transport and people around me are, you know, uh, not feeling well, I have a problem. Everything. My colleagues. Can I, can I ask you a follow-up question on that? A, a lot of people at this point, if you make that observation, they will say, well, are you turning into a socialist? I, I want to ask you a very pointed question on economics at this very stage. Because does this mean that there's, there are some fundamentals of economic theory that have to be adjusted because of this realization, or, or at least the global system as it is now playing out. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe more precisely, some political ideologies perhaps need to be adjusted. It's not the economics, because the economics you know, were perhaps there, but it mm -hmm. is the precise sort of politicization of this into kind of either we believe in a market economy fixing everything, or we believe in a socialist state taking care of the, you know, the, the people who are not contributing as much. But you're mm. sort of alluding to a different reality, which is kind of a little bit beyond that kind of day-to-day -day politics. Can you expand a little bit on what this... Sure, this is, this is an excellent question. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think, uh, first of all, let us take stock of what's happening today. Now, right? What has the response been? Uh, people have actually been given money, right? That they, nobody can, can argue that they have earned. They need that money, sure. They've been given that. And almost everybody within the so-called capitalist system agrees that that was the right thing to do, right? So that already, to an extent, I think, answers your question in terms of whether this can be either this or that. But I'll, I'll, I'll expand a little bit further. We also have a system which... Uh, breaks down every 10 years, give or take. Right? Uh, so I think it's, it's a little bit hard to argue that this is the perfect system. I am absolutely not in the camp of uh, uh, not taking notice of contributions and performance and giving away money and so on, because I think that is also self-defeating. But I think what has, hap what has happened is we need to adjust our our uh, KPIs, if you will, to, if I may borrow, uh, you know, a corporate uh, jargon, in terms of how we measure social progress, I am personally, for instance, not convinced uh, that we are allocating resources properly. For instance, and I'll give you, a, I mean, is it really good use of the world's resources to have, I'm just taking a random example, okay, 50 brands of sneakers or you know, 250 brands of shampoo or whatever else. I just don't see that as good use of, you know, the world's resources. Yes, you could argue that it creates employment, but so does uh, selling drugs. I mean, that's not an argument. Right. Right? So let's just say that I buy that argument and people mm. might buy that argument too. Mm. How do you direct people's innovative activity? 
economy and stimulate the right kind of innovation. Your point is that there are right and wrong types of innovation for a junction in a culture or society. How, how do you shift that? If that's kind of, let's say we even agree that there are areas that are less important. How mm. do you, at a societal level, shift towards other areas? So I think it's a combination of uh, on uh, with, of fiscal and monetary stimulus to an extent, and right. I mean, at its core, it is something that is probably utopian, which is a change in values. But it is something that is uh, not impossible. There are countries in the world where you know uh, a more egalitarian culture, a more equal distribution of wealth, a more equal distribution of you know societal uh, uh, privileges is more pronounced than other places. I mean, let's face that. There are countries in the world which have managed to do that. I, I agree. It is perfect, but some people are better than others. Right? It is ironic, Biswajit, uh, uh, that we are having this discussion, you and I, given that it is just the day after we attended a summit that at least, you know, in previous yes. years, gathered $4.6 trillion in wealth. Yes. $4.6 trillion in wealth. Yes, yes. Exactly. How do you account yeah. for that? And and what's yeah. gonna, you know, what is the role of that community in, in, in thinking about these? Look, I think again, I absolutely I think I think really it is uh, there is I'm sure you've you've come across this. There is this now this movement towards uh, die empty. Right? Right? Where you okay, you create wealth, yes, that's fine. And I mean look I'm not at all socialist in the sense of saying that everybody is equally entitled and everybody is equally capable and all that. I personally don't believe that. There are certain people who are much better at creating wealth than others. That's just, you know, we see that all the time, right? The problem is not in the creating wealth. The problem is how that then gets channeled into activities that is simply, you know, not productive for society at large. So, so, so we have to figure out a way now, to, to basically divert that towards objectives that are beneficial to society at large. Potentially, taxation at high levels is one of the things to be thought about. Right at a certain level beyond which, you know, you, I mean, I don't know what that level is and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's different for different societies anyway. But beyond a certain level, the, the, you know, the inheritance tax and, and, and you know, and, and, and even income taxes, etc., probably need to be much higher than they are. Right. But, uh, but that does bring the question, though, and maybe you are answering that with, with your uh, statement right there. You are now assuming that there is an entity uh, in every society or in every geographical region that can handle getting those resources, right? In the first instance, with tax, it would be some level of government that would be. Now, yeah. how would they then disperse it? That's the other question. Yes, absolutely. 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 That's, that's absolutely the other question. And, and this is where I think I was, this is the sort of KPI style question I was, I was, you know, referring to. Society, I mean, by and large, the whole world today is, is a democracy. Mostly. Right? So in theory, at least, it is the people who get to decide who is in power and who is in not, who is not, what are the kind of policies that people support and so on, right? If you have the right KPIs for society, uh, at the end of the day, the right sort of behavior gets rewarded. Right. right? Now, if you have a society that, for instance, is driven by, you know, the level of a particular stock market index, then that's how behavior is going to be driven. If on the other hand, you are, you know, driven by, again, using a random uh, metric, GDP per capita, that would drive a very different kind of, uh, you know, governance, a different kind of behavior and so on and so forth. So I think in a democracy, at the end of the day, it is up to the people to decide the kind of country they want. I, I realize that there are challenges there in terms of actual implementation. I'm not. Uh, uh, the thing I will challenge you on is simply this: your profession, not, and not that you are responsible for your profession. Yes. But it is yeah. a profession where macroeconomic thinking is not something that the random person on the street 
is particularly good at. I, I'm going to make that statement. Yes, no, absolutely. You're right. But what that also means is that, you know, there's a big responsibility on the shoulders of people who are macroeconomists, but one, to explain what's going on, but two, uh, to kind of adjust their, their own theories. And, and arguably, in many countries, the theory has, you know, the, the ideology really among the elite has been, you know, you either understand or you don't understand economics and, and don't come here and teach us, you know, even, you know, even anything about, you know, so in other words, I think a lot of voters in democratic societies are assuming that they can't have an opinion about things that are so complicated. So they kind of, they are outsourcing a lot of that thinking to a given profession. And that profession has had really just one or two different directions to go. And, and you know, the, it has been so extreme on, on the things we started out with, you know, either kind of a socialist or distributarian type of approach or a very market liberal type of approach. It's difficult for the man in the street with a vote to impact that thinking. Yes, I, 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 and and no to an extent. I mean, in the sense that, yes, uh, it's it's obviously unfair to expect you know somebody who flips a burger at McDonald's to have an opinion about how the country is going to be run. But he certainly has uh, the right and, and and frankly the ability to have an opinion about how his life is. Does he does he get a fair salary? Does he you know does his you know kid go to the right kind of school if he's capable of going there? Does he, you know, have access to healthcare uh, at at a certain minimum level? I think these are things that you can have an opinion about. I, I agree, and and I was going to ask you here. You know, part of this is also about new opportunities being afforded by perhaps even technology, right? So at at the conference we just both attended, uh, blockchain technology was kind of put up as this massive new equalizer that that's going to create certainly new opportunity, but maybe mm -hmm. even some people into the economy and able to start from a very low base, but because the tool is slightly more flexible than regular quiet, you know, fiat currency, you can yes. actually arguably, once it simplifies a little bit, because right now the terminology just puts a lot of people, uh, yes. you know, disadvantage. Once it simplifies a little bit more, the theory is this will kind of flatten uh, opportunities at the very basic level. So no matter if you enter with $500,000 or $50 or $5, you have a way to incrementally increase that because you can actually start playing in the economy with your ticket, mm -hmm. however small. Do you mm -hmm. believe that? That's a good question. Look, in principle, I think that's correct. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about the actual... Uh, uh, implementation of it. Uh, so I'll give you, an, I mean, some some concerns that I have. Uh, uh, so does somebody who's got, let's say, today, today we have a situation where uh, if I have a million dollars, then I can go to a wealth manager and I can get a portfolio constructed and I can have my, you know, my, my estate plan for my, my kids and for my retirement and for my, my, you know, possible medical situation and so on and so forth. If I have $5,000, I can't. What this technology is allowing me to do is actually work on, on that sort of thing today with, with much smaller amounts. So there is an element of democratization there. What worries me though is that sometimes, and not often, I'm, I'm, this, I'm, I'm being careful here, sometimes the motivation levels for doing that also change with the level of wealth. By that, what I mean is somebody who's got $5,000, for instance, uh, total net worth, may be simply more focused on immediate gratification and less concerned about long-term financial needs. This, this is true. Uh, I'm actually blanking on the location, but there was actually recently last month an experiment where they did hand out, I believe, $5,000 to people in a certain uh, town, I think. And the results okay. were surprisingly positive. I can't now explain the example. I'll link it up in the podcast. But um, I agree with you. You know, the theory would be that that would maybe not be a good thing to do. 
But mm -hmm. according to the little experiment which they tried out of desperation around COVID, they were very surprised to see what happened. And I think, you know, a lot of microfinancing schemes yes. run by various NGOs sort of come to the same conclusion that yes. it, it's surprising how creative, even very poorly resourced people could be when they get a sort of significant amount of money in their hand. It's people are not... Yeah, yes, absolutely. Access to credit, access to... And also keep in mind, I mean, uh, for instance, if you take the Grameen Bank example in Bangladesh, right? right? Uh, microfinance, very successful. But look at the KPIs. Uh, the credit was actually, you know, made strong by the shared sense of responsibility by the borrowers. Right? If one person defaulted, you know, it hurt everybody else. Their microcosm of that society, right? And that was the disincentive to not, you know, mess around, to not default. And that's ideal in my world. I mean, today but we have situations. That would only be possible in a society where the community could see that. I mean, yes. Right? Yes. It, it would yes. Be, so let's move to the MENA region for, for a moment. That's where you are now. How, how do you see those dynamics playing out there? I mean, you know, for, for the outsider, it's a very unequal society where there are a lot of wealthy people and a lot of obviously not so resourced people. How would that kind of dynamic work in this region? So I think, I think first of all, uh, that perception itself may need some correcting. Uh, so uh, let's take UAE as an example. Since I'm, I'm in the UAE and, and we can to an extent, expand that to most of the GCC, definitely. The wider MENA is a slightly different kettle of fish. We can go into that uh, in due course. So, so let's, let's look at the oil-producing countries this in the region. So, so, you know, the Gulf Cooperation countries or whatever. By and large, uh, citizens of these countries are reasonably well taken care of by the government. Right. So, so they have disbursements that, that follow from, from the revenues. Yes, from the oil revenues and so on and so forth. Obviously, there are, there are different levels of this. And, and to an extent, we come to the point of how some people are simply better capable of producing wealth than others. But I would argue that there is a, uh, an acceptable level of sustenance that is provided for by the state to all its citizens. Right. So, so you have, you know, uh, education taken care of, healthcare taken care of, housing taken care of, quite a lot of family support, etc. taken care of. Very well uh, provided for, I think, by and large. When it comes to the expatriates, that story becomes a little bit more complicated. Right. Right. So, uh, and you could, you could argue that, you know, expatriates come here. Uh, for a limited period of time, uh, do not uh, uh, expect to be provided with the same level of government support that, that citizens uh, are entitled to. Um, and, and therefore, it's probably a little less unfair. You could argue that. Now, having said that, I go back to my earlier point. There are limits to how far you can stretch this argument. Uh, if you have, for instance, as we have discovered now, if you have, uh, you know, large number of people living in very cramped quarters uh, uh, under unhygienic conditions, that is not great for the entire society. Right. So I guess right. that so, is big challenges for, for, the, for this region, actually, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, because I mean, I could be living in a very nice house somewhere and feel very secure. But the reality is that the guy who is providing various kinds of services to my building, if he is not living in adequately safe environment, poses a danger to me and my well-being. And therefore, it is up to me to make sure that he's kind of taken care of a little bit. Right. How has that played out, would you say? Uh, is that largely now understood and slowly being taken care of? Or has that taken a long time to sink in? No, I think, look, I think, uh, obviously, it hasn't uh, been that long in that sense. But I think, by and large, it's been dealt with well. By and large, uh, and, and again, to my, you know, uh, uh, very, very pleasant surprise, not just by the government, but also by the people. 
and i'll tell you what i mean by that uh, i mean so i'll give an example so we have in 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 dubai there is a place called al ras area where which is bit high population density and uh, based on initial testing it was uh, considered a high risk zone also so the government actually shut the whole area down as in all access and uh, and egress from that area was shut down it was basically you know uh, but and they conducted room to room tests every single resident of that area was tested right but and this is what i liked every single resident even though he couldn't move out or nobody could move in or whatever was provided with 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 uh, food throughout that 15 day period by the government there was you know the cleaning everything was done by the government while all this was going on right so and this we've seen in multiple places where people have you know come under distress there have been centers set up for people to be housed and so on and provided with food and so on so i think that's from the government side has been very very good in my opinion what was also very very surprising for me was how you know the average joe stepped up people somehow uh, discovered it within themselves the sense of empathy for all the other people who are affected and i personally know several groups who are you know just regular people who, who um, mostly expats right who uh, just felt uh, moved by the plight of you know some of the blue collar workers who are who have been you know left out of a job uh, are unable to pay their rent or unable to even sometimes uh, provide for their food how many people have come together to contribute multiple times to make sure that as much as possible things can become better so somewhere i think that realization that i mentioned earlier about shared sense of purpose or responsibility or 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 destiny even somewhere there is that seeping in i have heard of similar stories out of india as well where my friends have got involved in in similar kind of activities So, so it what is would what would that mean then geopolitically if if that kind of um happens in in several important large economies with a large amount of people mm. does that fundamentally change the laws of economics i mean can you do new things now with this realization i think surely so. economies are based on a certain notion of what the community is and what the community Yes, yes. So I will give you an example of something that are already happening. I'm sure you've come across them already. So to take an example from my country, India, Mumbai, for instance, which has close to 30 million, you know, daytime residents, right? Creaking uh, infrastructure, it's virtually impossible for anything to be done. It somehow manages to get by, but it's it's really impossible to do anything. on a significant scale just because of the density as well now this pandemic what it has done is forced a lot of the migrant population to go back to where they came from right once they have gone back some states actually have put in place various kinds of upskilling programs various kinds of employment programs to make sure that they are employed there once you do that right and these people then presumably continue to live in those places as opposed to going back to bombay the, the dispersion of wealth happens automatically to an extent and some of these you know these excesses that creep up in terms of you know uh, bad working conditions bad living conditions etc automatically disappear it also has a beneficial effect on society at large because now this uh, again using the example of the migrant worker who was living in mumbai away from his family and potentially getting into all sorts of bad habits right simply because you know he needs an an outlet now goes and has a more wholesome life with his family and so on and so forth and presumably actually leads to you know a, a, a less t- social tension more social well being general sense of you know uh, of of uh, Uh, or general less sense of you know 
of uh, being disenfranchised or being shut out of the system or whatever because now you have something uh, in your own backyard that you're comfortable with okay uh, but are these effects lasting i mean that's what the question is on everybody's mind and surely you as a planner uh, you know of 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 wealth for other people and uh, and you know as thinking about the long term economics it's on everybody's mind is this redistribution this decentralization this forced sort of demigration how long is that going to last i think if, i think a lot of it will right? will it will it ever go back when right? you know will this virus retreat but if the virus retreats will we go back to where we were i don't think it will go back fully uh, and one big reason is technology what this has done to an extent is actually uh, really shown people what is possible right uh, working from home was possible probably for the last 5 years but somehow people resisted that idea because you know it was just something that they hadn't really taken taken root and it was one of these things it was almost seen as some sort of a of a benefit to be offered to employee that okay you can work from home today because you have to you know you know you have a sick sick baby or you have to take your whatever right the commercial benefit of actually doing that to the organization was not felt this is the first time that it is being felt and it is being experimented with on on a scale that was unprecedented so i have heard of organizations where tens of thousands of workers are working from home for months and life is going on right so why wouldn't you 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 know you actually have the opportunity today to again to take an example of bombay or or, or manhattan or any any of these places why would you want to live in manhattan you know and pay pay you know new york taxes and and pay new york rents right uh, if you had the choice of going out you know 2 hours out and and live in a nice house with a backyard and an easy life and avoid the 2 hour commute each way or whatever it is uh, actually pay less taxes which over time uh, would allow your employer to pay you less because you are feeling better and of course the employer doesn't have to you know take care of all your you know the the infrastructure that he was taking care of today uh, uh, to maintain a corporate headquarter in in, in new york or wherever it is so there's a commercial driver that that that's making this happen i want to i i was just I, i i it's interesting what you're saying i wanted to lift the perspective just even a little further so we can talk about what this pandemic has done and you had some some very uh, actually interesting things to say about that that i want to explore but but before that what do you think the fact that this happened means for economists and others thinking about the next decade do we now have to factor in kind of x factors like this in a way that we never had before or is this such a singular event that whatever we're experiencing now we just have to take it at face value and kind of just understand what this is but we don't really have to worry about other things or do you think that we're going in to a decade and to uh next 30 years where there will be things of this nature whether it is other pandemics Uh, you know ecological cataclysms or political or kind of you know even just economic new phenomenons or technologies that will have a similarly disruptive impact i think it's a latter i mean i think clearly we are starting to see uh, the next one that comes to mind immediately is some sort of a, an environmental uh, problem i mean clearly the world is moving towards you know a situation where we will be forced to take note of uh, you know the depredation that's happening globally i mean we are seeing that already somehow we are still in this boiling frog sort of uh, mindset where we are we are still saying okay this is one little fire here and one degree degree rise in temperature there and one little volcano erupting and so on but the reality is it's all coming together right and again this will be one of those things much like this pandemic unfortunately which will not distinguish between you know uh, the wealthy and the poor or you know whatever any of these it will it will not take unfortunately but maybe maybe fortunately yes maybe fortunately 
that they fortunately right. because it will force us to really you know look at things more holistically because but, but yeah. i mean this debate is is difficult right because i i think it was madonna that first got to uh, feel this you know she she uh, issued a video from her bathtub in london with you know rose petals and she said you know covid is the great equalizer and she got into a lot of trouble for that right <laughs> because covid is also not the you know i mean you've been saying it's the equalizer and it is an yeah. equalizer in some sense but in a very different sense if you look at who has access to the testing you know who has access to the best healthcare who has a house in the countryside and can retreat mm-hmm. and who actually is on vacation right now yes um, yeah. go to a luxury hotel where you are socially distant and where every staff member is tested for covid every week you know th- this is not really the great equalizer is it it isn't but look i think what uh what it is doing i, I, I mean I, i think it would be almost impractical to expect a fully equal society i think what we should accept realistically not 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 uh, just being pragmatic about it not necessarily idealistic about it is that level of inequality becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and restricted to a very small part of the population uh, how many of us i mean uh, can aspire to that sort of a life right i mean from the 1% now we are probably talking about the 0.01% that's right okay the 0.01% has that lifestyle fine at least 99.9% lives better more equally more you know yeah i i actually agree with you right there's a there's an argument that says you know at the very very top of the elite it doesn't really matter yeah yeah it's it's like symbolically interesting but it actually doesn't make a you know it doesn't make their life better it couldn't possibly make the life better for the greater amount of population which yes. is perhaps more important and so that's one the other is even for them i mean yes uh, they're able to be insulated but i find it difficult to uh, to to agree that their lives are unaffected i mean at the end of the day again to take madonna as an example since you brought her up the sort of concerts that used to happen the sort of you know public that goes away the public adulation the public whatever that disappears right and over time i would argue that the star power etc become less of a factor because you seeing you know somebody on screen or whatever it is okay it's not the same thing so i think that number becomes smaller and smaller over time you're seeing a new generation of heroes can emerge from this yes i think so i think uh, you know uh, it is changing a lot of people in in a lot of different ways uh, technology is helping obviously uh, so uh, and it is helping in different ways so so one is technology is helping to create to to, to create many more wealthy people which to an extent is also not a bad thing instead of having few people having you know so so there is there is so there is more wealth being created at one level uh, it is also technology at the end of the day is an enabler it is also enabling many people who had the intentions but did not have the resources to do much good to the world uh, than was possible before right so uh, i mean you heard of the khan academy for instance right so so there are people who are, you know who are using technology for good and i'll give another example of how technology i mean i'm i'm experiencing it myself uh, in 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 this sort of slightly sort of uh, 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 let's say lockdown kind of environment uh, i have uh, attended several online courses from you know premier universities sitting here that i would not have been able to do regardless of the monetary aspect simply because i wouldn't have the time to do it right i mean it would be impossible for me to go off to harvard for 6 weeks and come back and then go off to columbia for 6 weeks and come back it's just not possible but here sitting here i can do that and i'm learning pretty much what is state of the art knowledge sitting uh, in my apartment you know uh, uh, coordinating with with experts from all over the world i'm able to do that so this is you know and then hopefully i'm able to cascade that knowledge out in some practical fashion to do other things for other people 
So, so, so let me let me ask you about this. You are an economist, so you think in these macro terms. What do you think? Let's just say, let's just for this thought experiment say that this pandemic, which I happen to believe, is going to affect the the entire decade in some in fairly yes, significant. Yes, I think so. And I think you you seem to agree with yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. In many ways. Yes. What does a decade's sustained change? Obviously, that the change will will kind of be different every year, and it'll go in. in Sort of waves, and we will learn different things, you know, yes. throughout. Yes. But let's just say that we will postulate both of us for this conversation. There will be significant impacts, and they are not going to go away in 2021. Yes. What, what sort of putting your kind of economics hat on? What will the compound effect of that be over a decade? What sorts of things should we be expecting? Like, how different will society look in? It's a difficult one. I think, I think one of the things that uh, I feel relatively confident about is uh, that, that uh, developments in AI will totally transform the way we do many things. Uh, AI and, and frankly things like blockchain, this kind of technology, will, will, will bring many more people into the formal economy into uh, into uh, uh, let's say more organized uh, uh, lives than 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 has been the case before. I also think a lot of look a lot of the things that we we have got used to and think of as normal are really the product of an economic system. So uh, to uh, the whole system of, you know, uh, of education that we have today, right? Uh, it's I know it's 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 it, it, it transitioning, but the whole system of education is around passing certain examinations. Why? Because then that allows employers uh, flexibility in terms of slotting you into certain kinds of roles and so on and so forth, and therefore you progress from there. I think that's going to change. I think, just like I was just mentioning a minute ago, uh, now sitting here, I, I don't really have to worry about acquiring, you know, uh, uh, or, or polishing up my skills in, in, in AI if I wanted to, uh, by taking several courses without having to say, okay, I did my PhD in, you know, uh, in, in neural networks or whatever it is, and therefore only I'm eligible. I don't have to, right? So it allows people to, to stitch together skill sets in a way that has never been possible before. So it is possible today for some, for, it's possible today for somebody like me, uh, who's always been working in finance, for instance, in, in traditional finance, to transition to, let's say, a fintech by combining my financial market skills with some technology skills that, that I can acquire over the, and, and basically get a much more holistic understanding of things. I think so education, for instance, I think is going to get completely transformed from a uh, information-based education, memory-based education, processing-based education. It's all going away, I think. And we are getting into critical thinking and judgment and those kind of things becoming much more important. I think that's that because, you know, in theory, what you were just saying, I think, has been accessible to you for more than five years. It's just that you one didn't have the time to do it, and perhaps two, not, you know, not the motivation to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and also, yes, technologies are keep getting easier, and the schools did also lax on their sort of criteria, yes. cheaper, and and, and kind of yes. open the classes. So a lot of things did change really, really fast. Yes. Yeah. So I, yeah, exactly. I think I think what COVID has done to a very large extent is accelerating things. These were there. You're absolutely right. But because because uh, of what happened, and it sort of forced people's hands uh, and and allowed certain things to. I mean, uh, education has changed fundamentally. I mean, I I actually do not think that. Uh, apart from the really, you know, uh, uh, highly rated colleges, I think the others are going to struggle. 
I think so. You know, if you don't have a name brand and an endowment, yes. yes. You actually have to be a local school. You you are you yes, have to have exactly, exactly. an endowment or a local connection. Yeah. Otherwise, you don't have a connection. It protects you know, for virus yes. and so no yeah. travel. And yeah. You know, so that's so, going to change. Yeah. Or if you have a digital strategy, that that would be the fourth, right? So yes. You, you have to have yes. a digital platform. Yes. If you don't have any of these four or perhaps three of the four, you're in But yeah, even there, you know, okay, yes, of course, there will be outliers. But if I had the choice to attend an online course from MIT and one from, you know, a lesser known college sitting here with a couple of hundred dollars difference, which one would I choose? Well, that's easy. But what if it was a significant difference that would mean, you know, less, yeah. less yes. to your uh, family yes. for Christmas. Maybe, maybe, maybe. So absolutely. So so there would be a little bit... There's, uh, a, there's a cutoff whereby yeah. you would say, Correct. I'm going to take it from some second tier school. Correct. Correct. So yeah, there, there, there would be there. Even that is fantastic because, uh, yeah, so it, it in theory, it opens up somebody from India. Uh, uh, attending, uh, you know, at least a tier two uh, uh, college uh, in the U.S. somewhere that is specializing in something. So, so I think that's one. The other thing that I think will fundamentally change, already changing, but will change massively, is medicine. Uh, all the technology is that is being brought to play there is between telemedicine and robotic and this that and the other. I think I think it's just completely changing. It, it, it's not going to be the same at all. I mean. Uh, meet face to face with their GP. I mean, you know, in America, we have kind of a mandated 10 minutes with our GP every, uh, every year, or I mean, the annual checkup takes maybe a little bit longer, but in, in many places, less than half an hour for a, for a full annual checkup, which is the only time you ever, you mm. know, see your GP. And for any other things that are more urgent, you do literally just 10 minutes. You get your medication. Yeah. You're done. Mm. Yeah. But now expand that to a village in Bangladesh, where probably there isn't a doctor in the village at all. And in case somebody falls sick, so far he had to go to the nearest town where there's a hospital. Right. Right. That's it not possible. Yeah. Now, now they can maybe just call them up. Yeah. Yeah. And and. Uh, 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 if you had instead of a you know specialist sitting uh, in in Mumbai uh, who can guide surgery on the net uh, using somebody on site who doesn't have to be the specialist but this guy sitting there and guiding him and telling him what to do, you know, uh, uh, so that I think opens things up in terms of well-being massive. I mean, we have uh, the number of doctors per uh, you know per million population in most of these countries is very small, right? So, so I think that, for instance, is is, is another thing that I I see fundamentally changing. Uh, I see technology changing uh, uh, the whole. I mean, I think extending life. Uh, however, you choose to define it. But I, I, I see well, longevity increasing. Health, health span for sure. Lifespan is one thing, but health span for sure. Like hopefully, yeah, correct. Living correct. better life. Yes, yes. So uh, uh, between between uh, just uh, 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 the entire span from being able to predict, you know, predispositions all the way through to you know addressing problems as they arise. Uh, I think capabilities are going to increase, are increasing, will increase much more. So, so that, uh, you know, everything from uh, DNA, DNA uh, prototypes on the way through to uh, bionic limbs and, 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 you know, chips being planted, the whole thing I think is going to happen. So, Vijayajit, what you're telling me is, of course, good news for me because I run a podcast on, you know, emerging society and technologies. And, and you know, I, I can, you know, be very happy if there were more people like you who, who took a, an increased interest in all these things because of COVID. Do you see that happening to your colleagues all around? I mean, the story that you just told me about kind of your own personal and professional development during just these eight months, uh, nine months now of, of COVID. 
Do you see that even in your immediate community and in yes, Dubai? Yes, I do. I do. So again, I think, see, like everything, everything else, uh, different people respond differently to these things. Uh, so, so you have the whole spectrum. There are people who are uh, essentially allowing it to depress them or scare them and make them more anxious. Uh, and, and there are people who are saying, okay, yes, it is what it is, but it is there are positives to this. And let us use the positives here and do something. I have friends who are learning everything from, you know, Thai cooking to, 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 to fintechs, to art, to what have you. So there are people who are doing that, right? That's also, also, very importantly, I, I think, I mean, uh, people are really uh, re-examining their priorities. Uh, I think health, as we discussed earlier, has, has rapidly gone to the top of the chart. But also, I think people are, uh, are valuing relationships much more, actually. People, uh, you know, uh, uh, not only are they valuing it, they're also being more uh, discerning about it. So you, first of all, you say, okay, now I can't meet people. So you really value the opportunities that you have to meet people. That's one. But having done that, now you say, okay, I have, let's say, you know, I don't know, 150 minutes a week to meet other people. Who are the people that I'm going to meet with? Who are the ones that really, you know, make my life better? Who do I enjoy spending time with, whatever it is, make my life more? So there is, there is that. There is also, uh, in a lot of my friends at least, a sense of, okay, I mean, do I really have to, you know, do I really need that new watch? Or, or do I really need to buy a suit every three months or whatever it is or whatever, you know? I really don't need to. And you, you know, uh, realize that, you know, what you have is good enough, comfortable, okay, it's fine. And I, I'm seeing that with friends, people who are choosing to not consume as much as before. I was saying, okay, it's fine, I mean, so long as I'm happy, so long as it's easy. I think people are people are appreciating uh, ease and comfort a little bit more. I think people people feel uh, or, or 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 realize. I think they always felt it, but they realize how much better it feels to be a little bit unburdened by you know by pretensions and whatever it is. Just relax. I wanted to sort of round this off. I guess one by just asking you: you've, you've traveled around the world, both for your profession and you've taken an interest in travel. How do you? How do you? How has that changed for you? Uh, the fact that you know travel and experiencing different cultures yeah. must have been really important to you. How, how, do you think that's going to change now? Yeah, that for me was enormous. I was, I'm, 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 I'm uh, yeah, extremely fond of travel. So yeah, I, that's that's definitely been one of the things that that uh, I missed. But I think what will change again? Look again. This is now I'm sticking my neck out a little bit. But I think two things are going to happen, and almost in parallel. I think one is that uh, people will feel cautious about. Uh, non-essential travel for quite some time. Uh, as much because of uh, health reasons as for, you know, uh, inconveniences around certain changes in, in the, you know, in, in, the, in the sort of uh, environment in terms of what is permissible and what is not permissible in the, in the sense of flights being you know, rescheduled, diverted, cancelled. Uh, all those kind of things, right? Uh, we, I mean, I can't see myself, for instance, going and for some time feeling comfortable about going to, I don't know, Thailand and, and, and actually, you know, uh, going to a spa or something like that. I would feel a bit concerned at this point in time, right? So I think that that will continue. What will be more, more pronounced, if nothing else changes, I think this is a phenomenon that will probably be short-lived, two years, three years, and then people will start to go back to their normal ways. And I'm sure you've seen these flights to nowhere, etc. happening. Uh, 
Qantas actually uh, did this flight to nowhere and it sold out in 10 minutes. So clearly people are, are, are missing, uh, you know, the experience of flying. I think what can, however, make this more long lasting and permanent is if, you know, uh, augmented reality, etc. becomes more and more uh, powerful, right? At the end of the day, uh, all our experiences in the mind, right? I mean, uh, we think it is all outside, but it's all here, right? Uh, if we are, if uh, uh, virtual reality, etc. becomes powerful enough to create experiences in here, I think that has the potential to make a big difference. I'm already I'm coming across, I'm coming across uh, people who are conducting this online tours. Uh, where you basically you know put on put on your you know headphones and then whatever, and they take you through a tour of Rome or Alaska or wherever it is. But that's still at a relatively uh, uh, primitive level, I think. But I think no, if you are able to the Faroe Islands in uh, you know up up in the north, uh, you know uh, north of the UK, right? The Faroe Islands. Uh, yes. The tourist office there have put on real life virtual tours where you can book a tour will walk okay. around. There you go, yeah. yeah. The guy yeah. will literally walk around with the really, road. I should check this out. I should check this out. Because I've been you saying can. for quite some time that this is what's going to happen. Really? I know. Okay. You can check that out. So you can ask them. You can say, today, uh, you know, you've offered me four options. I want to climb the mountain. And when you get oh, to yeah. the mountain, you can say, please take a picture to the north. I, I, I think there should be a sunset to the north. That's what I think. And then they okay. will turn to and, and, and show you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think this this is something that has potential. I really think uh, at some point, uh, you know, uh, whether everybody will move, I don't know, but a lot of people, I think, will opt for these kind of options as well. Uh, so so and that will obviously have very long-lasting implications for many places. I mean, uh, the whole economy uh, for certain countries is including Dubai, uh, Thailand, Singapore, uh, Maldives, you know, many, many countries which really uh, depend on physical tourism uh, uh, will be affected. So I think there are some of these, these changes that will take place, definitely. My last question for you is simply this. Uh, you know, this conversation has, has moved sort of from economics to, to, to travel to yes. kind of long-term consequences. Yes. Somebody, what is your advice to someone who, who really wants to understand what seems to be happening to the world right now? Where, where do they go? I mean, clearly not just watching TV. Uh, Actually, particularly not watching TV, I think. Where are the sources of information that would tell you anything useful about where the economy is going, where their leisure life is going, where, where technology is going? Where do you go these days? So I think I don't. I, I personally don't have one one source. I, I like to, uh, and, and that's uh, as much uh, uh, to do with intellectual curiosity as to do with uh, the uh, ability and and desire to cross check things. Because really, it's uh, becoming increasingly difficult to rely on one particular source of information uh, as gospel truth. I think that's just very difficult to do. So I, I try to look at uh, multiple sources of, sources of information uh, and where possible, I try to uh, sort of uh, also see how I feel about it. I think that, 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 that is something that is important. I mean, I mean um, particularly when it comes to emotionally charged subjects like politics or something like that. Uh, there are obviously very strong points of view on either side. And even if you, you know, uh, uh, take note of both, you really are eventually left with only one choice, which is to, okay, take both of these things and then think about both and then come to your own conclusion. That's great that, advice. That's yeah. great advice, right? Because you yeah. can say, you know, fake news, not fake news. But at some point, the, the spending enough time to really just take in what your reaction is yes. And make and I think a lot of people, uh, so unfortunately, uh, I think a lot of people don't do enough of that last one. I think a lot of people just read and then go with it. Yeah. Or, or listen and go with it. But I think it is important to 
think about it yourself and see if it is you know really resonating with you does it make sense to you and i'm not saying we'll get it right all the time but that is really i mean uh, the only way you go to absorb it properly otherwise it's just somebody else's story i agree with that I think that's sound advice. And on that note, I I really really want to thank you for for spending thank this you. time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It was super interesting and I hope that uh, our uh, listeners also got something from a a mind thinking about economy and wider impact of uh, of COVID on on our society. So thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. You had just listened to episode 62 of the Futurized podcast with host Ronar Nunheim, futurist and author. The topic was financial megatrends in the Middle East. Our guest was Bizvajit Dasgupta, chief investment officer and head of global markets for Emirates Investment Bank. In this conversation, we talked about financial and social megatrends, COVID-19's impact on the region and the world, geopolitical risk, economic challenges at the start of the decade in the MENA region and beyond, and what that means for the future. My takeaway is that the future of the Middle East is crucial to the future of everything else. It's increasingly a gateway region between Europe, Asia, and America. A region fraught with risk, it seems to emerge with a mixed picture, both highly developed and somewhat vulnerable, if the post-petroleum transition does not go well. The COVID adaptation adaptions similarly show a mixed picture a region to watch and engage with thanks for listening if you like the show subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars futurized preparing you to deal with disruptions <laughs>